good morning and welcome to Jew in the City Speaks with your host, Allison Josephs, also known as Jew in the City. When coronavirus um, broke out and sort of the world took this crazy turn for the worst, um, at the beginning, I was thinking like all of our content forever now will just be about COVID because what else could we possibly talk about? Um, and we kind of continued along that road for a while. Um, I think there was, you know, some stabilization, some lessening of cases over the summer and life kind of took a little bit of a, I wouldn't say normal pace at that point, but normal-ish, normalized. Maybe we got more used to how crazy things were. Um, and now we're unfortunately back in a time period of, of a spike um, and hospitals around the country are, you know, definitely um, filling up. And um, I just spoke to someone in LA that said they only have maybe 50 hospital beds left um, in, the ER, in the ER in her area. Um, and also sort of in the midst of kind of this crazy uptick in cases, there's also, thank God, a vaccine that has come out in record time, um, which is really a testament to, I would say, you know, the ingenuity of human beings of working together, probably a little help from the one above. Um, we've spoke to a, a nurse a few months ago um, who was dealing with coronavirus, but, um, you know, things have kind of gotten more intense and maybe now we're looking to, um, the next stage of this horrible pandemic. Um, and with that intro, um, we would love to introduce you to Rachel Travis, a registered nurse who's working at NYU Long Island um, and is on the front lines and has been for many months. Rachel, thank you so much for joining us today. It's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. So um, I guess like let us know um, what, you know, I guess maybe a little bit about your your background, just you know, first Jewishly and kind of how you got into nursing. Um, what was your Jewish background and education growing up? When and why did you decide to you know go into this line of work? So I um, originally started out in nursing um, on a circuitous path. Uh, I grew up Orthodox Jewish in Far Rockaway. I went to yeshiva. My entire life, a great education, a great primer for morality, for ethics, um, for what it means to be a bastion um, in the universe, uh, and always remember my faith. Um, and I worked in finance, I worked doing different things, um, and ultimately I got a degree in Chinese medicine. And from there, I decided that I wanted to pursue something that had a lot more. Um, scientific um, trials and evidence, and I decided to go to nursing school um, in pursuit of a degree uh, to become a nurse midwife. Mm -hmm. And along my path, I became a nurse, and I worked in oncology for a number of years at uh, Northwell Health, uh, Leukemia Lymph Lymphoma Bone Marrow Transplant, pardon. And then um, a few years ago, I switched to NYU Winthrop, which is now called NYU Langone, Long Island. Um, and I've worked in the emergency department there for the last uh, few years. So that's a little bit about my background. Um, I could never have imagined at the beginning of my education that I would end up where I was. I always said never emergency room and never psychiatry. Um, and here I am in the midst of a global pandemic. Um, poised to do what it is that God asked me to do on a daily basis. Certainly, I could not have put myself here. 
so do they talk about this in nursing school? Like sort of what worst case scenarios look like? Is that sort of ever a class or like absolutely, a <laughs> absolutely. Um, in every nursing program, there's what they call disaster preparedness. So if you had to think back to um, Hurricane Katrina or the um, tornadoes in Joplin um, or various um, situations where emergency departments all of a sudden became unavailable to treat patients either because they were hit by a tornado or because everything was flooded. You have to be able to have some skills to be able to manage um, what that looks like. But how long a class is that? It's maybe an hour. So there are drills that happen actually at JFK every year. If God forbid there was a plane crash and you prepare for a disaster and you triage people according to um, how you think they will fare and how many you can actually save. And this happens in Israel all the time. This happens where they have um, real disaster situations and they have various people who are especially trained for this, but the average nurse is not trained extensively for it, no. And I, I wonder if um, part of sort of uh, the way that we stay sane is to, even if we hear that, like the worst case scenario, I mean, not this is the worst case scenario, obviously there, there could have been a version of this virus that was even more deadly or even more, um, you know, communicable. But I think probably part of our psychology is that we kind of assume that, you know, these bad things won't happen um, as sort of a way to, to cope. So you... Um, you're, you had in, in Long Island, the first COVID patient of, in Long Island so um, that you treated. What time, where was this in the timeline of when everything was heating up? So this was, the, it was at the beginning of March and we had, um, in most emergency departments, there's a, a bit of what they call a morning meeting or a morning huddle where the most important information is disseminated from the night before or what's in the news or what's coming. And we had been preparing for Corona as every other institution had, but um, there was a calm before the storm. I think this is all, um, this isn't giving you any private information, but the individual who had come into the hospital was a gentleman who had come in to an area that rapidly treats patients. And these are people who you're assuming you're gonna give them a few medications, maybe uh, you know there for an hour or two, and then they go home. And so I treated him with alacrity um, as is this area that's expected. And um, what happened was, is the following day he came in um, in a much further, in a, in a state where he needed much more acute care and um, much more serious hospitalization. And there's a difference between somebody who's having a little bit of shortness of breath and some tightness in the chest, and maybe they just need a few nebulizer treatments and some steroids and they go home, versus somebody who needs a hospitalization because looks, it looks like um, they're having much more um, challenge breathing and a harder time struggling uh, to keep up with the demand of the body. And if people have other comorbidities, it becomes much more complicated, such as diabetes or hypertension. Um, you know, for simple sake, people who have a hard time controlling their sugars when they're sick. So this is exactly what happened. So when the Department of Health called me and said, "You took care of that patient. Did you wear a mask?" I said, "Absolutely." Most hospitals at that point were having, I should say, NYU Long Island. We were wearing masks um, for anybody who was coughing or near you. You'd, ostensibly put a mask on, 
when somebody's either coughing in your face or coughing around you. So I had a mask on, I had had gloves on, so I didn't have to stay home and I just had to keep a log simply to make sure that I didn't develop any symptoms or I didn't develop a fever. Went back to work and, uh, but this patient ended up being tracked in the hospital and anybody who had exposure to him, because at that point we weren't wearing face shields. Mm -hmm. We were just simply wearing simple surgical masks. Um, and then the N95 came along and I know everybody knows quite a bit about that. Those are masks that were really reserved in hospitals for very specific patient population or presentation. Um, and now it's de Rougare and everybody speaks of it quite commonly. Um, in fact, people who haven't been fitted for them wear them, which I find is sometimes comical. Hmm. So um, how bad was your hospital, one of those hospitals that was, you know, um, at capacity, over capacity, sort of what was the worst of it? Um, right. Yeah, so we, we definitely, every time we got to the point where we were near capacity, we somehow found a way of finding more space or cohorting or what we did to, in our emergency department is that we divided half of the emergency department into an ICU mm -hmm. and an intensive care unit. So we could maintain some of the patients who required ventilators because uh, ER nurses know how to um, take care of those patients and it's a very specific skill set. Um, mm -hmm. There are a lot of monitors, there's a lot of different um, adjustments of medications constantly because because of the state of the patient keeping them in, in sedation at the same time as making sure that their pain is controlled, at the same time as monitoring what medications need to be given and their blood pressure. It's quite complicated. There are a lot of pumps involved. Mm -hmm. What would you say, what would you say, um, how, like, how, how did, did your faith um, sort of play a role in getting through this really difficult time? Because, you know, I, I guess at a certain point, we kind of got over a certain spike or a certain hump and we did have not to say that uh, anyone was off the hook, the cases were obviously continuing all along, but I would say probably the most uh, acute emergency kind of calmed down for a little bit. Before you got over that hump and you didn't know sort of how much more climbing was gonna happen, um, can you like kind of share with us how, how does turning to faith in those times, how did that kind of keep you going, strengthen you? Any thoughts about that? Yeah, so, um... You know, I, I certainly am somebody who tries to live my life full of intention um, and feel rooted both from on high, being carried on high and feel as though I'm rooted in the world where God wants me to be. Um, but I, I found myself in a place where what it was that I was doing, which was, um, I always prayed in the morning, I would say the morning blessings um, in the parking lot at work. I have my certain couple parking spots if it's taken, I take the next one. But you know, all of us are creatures of habit. Um, but I did find that I struggled. I struggled um, in ways that I couldn't have anticipated because when one thing isn't enough and um, I found myself um, sitting and going and meditating more frequently before work and after work, um, there are wonderful applications that are uh, available that help people um, or just on my own, just sitting there quietly and really coming down um, and being able to focus myself uh, inwardly. I found that um, writing a lot helped me mm -hmm. and uh, 
really rooting myself there because um, I was seeing a lot and I really couldn't bring home some of the really hard things that I was encountering day after day um, to my family uh, or to my partner mm -hmm. and also internally carrying that. It's too much for anybody to carry. Mm -hmm. So uh, for me, prayer and meditation were very helpful as well as writing. I found that for myself, I went back to running, um, which is something I hadn't done probably consistently in about 15 years. Um, and I, I sometimes listen to lectures when I run. So sometimes I'm listening to music and sometimes I'm listening to lectures and I'm out in fresh air. And that was something that really helped me feel as though um, I could wholly say entirely and feel completely true that God put me where he wanted me today. Um, and this is where you want me, right? And even though uh, I may doubt myself, I know that he didn't doubt me. Mm -hmm. And um, if he was going to put me there, well, then I obviously have something to offer humanity, my patients, my colleagues, uh, the hospital. There was so much being asked of us at that time and that's still being asked of us as healthcare providers. We're spread thinner. There's the acuity of the patients is much higher than it was before. Um, people come in and they're really sick and being able to really take care of people, that word care. Um, so I think that that's definitely rooted in my faith and that's a lot of how I carried myself through this and how I still do on a daily basis. That's beautiful. Any stories um, that are, you know, sort of stand out in your mind of, I don't say miraculous recoveries, but people that looked, you know, really bad and then, um, you know, took some turn for the better or that, that stand out something that you weren't expecting and then things got better than you thought? No, I, um, I don't have any one thing in particular. I can just say that when, um, in each person, I knew that I was there for a reason. I was their nurse because they had history of cancers and I know a lot about oncology or that they, um, they needed something particular that I could offer. And even as there were patients that were dying, the, the little granny, I would look at her hands and see her beautifully lacquered fingernails and, um, and, and her simple wedding band and look at her hair or her face. And you know the wrinkles tell a story and sometimes you make up a story in your mind or you hear a frantic family member tell you something about them. And, and in holding their hand as they pass or in a moment where, you know, whether they were intubated and they went into cardiac arrest or, I have no control over trying to save them, but there are there are stories of um, of of you know we say that people can still hear you. We know this from hospice and from palliative care nursing and doctors as well. When people are dying, the last of the five senses to go are their hearing, so they can hear you. And so sometimes just to affirm to people that they're not alone and that they are loved, and that their loved one um, wants to bid them goodbye, even though with an iPad, without an iPad. Um, I'll leave you with one tiny little story. Um, it was Easter Sunday, and obviously I'm a nice Orthodox Jewish girl. And uh, um, this woman came into the emergency department and she was of the Catholic faith and it's their, their holiday. And she came from a large family and she actually, um, she worked in the healthcare profession. I wanna honor her privacy in the story. And she told me that her favorite music were the Eagles. 
and she was on home hospice, but she became much more breathless and they thought it was coronavirus and they brought her in and her blood pressure was really low and her labs looked terrible. And whatever we were gonna do to save her was gonna take a lot of discomfort on her part. And we, myself and another nurse spoke with one of the, the physicians and said, we have to honor her decision, which is you know hospice and let's make her comfortable. And so I, I wrote a little essay called um, The Eagles in the ED on Easter Sunday. And we played this music, which was her favorite music. Um, and very rarely in the hospital in an emergency department that's very busy, do you hear people playing music? And I took my cell phone and I put it right near her bed and we sang a little, you know, you move your body past the mask and people can see your bright smile or the wrinkle around your eyes, letting you know that you're enjoying the music just as much as they are. And so she took her last breath, but she listened to the music that she loved. And, you know, we put lots of warm blankets and nice lotion on her feet. And you know, those are ways that we restore people's humanity and dignity, even as, um, as they, they leave this world. I assume that there's not really a, a possibility or a way to make an explicit Kiddush Hashem under all of that gear, because I was talking to some uh, some people that I know in my organization that were saying, you know, they feel like the Orthodox community has not been behaving completely well during this pandemic or as, uh, you know, as much as we would like them to comply in all cases with uh, social distancing and um, she feels like eyes are on her and she wants to, you know, kind of show someone that she's good. She's kind, she's friendly. And I said, well, a smile is free. And then I realized, wait, we're all wearing masks. We can't even smile at each other. Is there any way that anyone knew that you were an observant Jewish woman, or is that sort of like not even possible to be known in an emergency situation when you're under lots of gear? Right. So early in the pandemic, um, I called my rabbi and I said, what, you know, this is nothing like I've ever seen in my life. This, we did all this Ebola training back a couple of years ago and it came not to be here in New York. But what are my, um, what are not obligations wouldn't be the right word, but what, what's my generosity of spirit here? Mm -hmm. What can I offer a community, my healthcare team, my, um, what, what can I, how can I be a bastion in my, of my own community? Mm -hmm. And, you know, he, he said, certainly, you know, don't work on Shabbat, but offer yourself working extra on other days so that your team views you as a colleague. And they always have. I, um, I think in conversation with my colleagues, my faith is what really would shine. You know, we talk about um, that we have this beautiful faith when the sun is shining and um, or we feel glad and full of life when the sun is shining, but when it becomes nighttime, we have a certain deeper faith mm -hmm. um, inside of us. And those are phrases from Psalms, those are phrases from different liturgy, right? Mm -hmm. But when you actually have a conversation with somebody and you say, oh, you know, we're responsible for the effort, but the outcome is not ours. Right. Um, and what that looks like in my, in conversation with my, my work colleagues who are obviously many faiths, various races and ages and, um, and religions and variety like you wouldn't believe, the UN. Um, so I think that's really where it did shine through. I Offering words like words of Torah, Torah wisdom to be able to help people cope with 
the results not always being what you want them because otherwise you could live with regret and kick yourself again and again. And there's a certain permission to not blame yourself endlessly when you did all that you could with your hishtaglis and, and then they, you, you trust in a plan ultimately. Right. But I think more specifically for me, um, we have young people that come into the emergency department and, and they die. And sometimes it has, we, we just couldn't save them. They came in either expired and, or it's a hard um, situation for various reasons, um, one way or another way. And you have no idea why it is um, that a, a situation occurred. So I, I you know more personally, I can say that the stories of Elia Ohanavi have really helped me because I can't know when I'm looking at somebody um, and, I, and I internalize he passed and what could I have done differently and what, what did the autopsy say or what did we miss? What did we miss? In medicine, we're always doing that. We do debriefings. What do you think was salient and helpful in, in, in the way we ran this? What do you think could have been done differently? Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of like, what, like in Misiel Isharim, the, what they call Yifashvesh or Yamashmesh, like this constant um, pondering and ruminating about what it is that we're trying to refine about our process, our, our way of doing this. Mm-hmm. I think that when we say um, that we're, we, we're here because God gave us a mission, mm-hmm. he gets to decide what happens, but he acts through us. And I'm an agent mm-hmm. because he put me here. Mm-hmm. So I'll say in that way, that is a way that I conveyed over my faith constantly mm-hmm. to my colleagues. And, um, and, and in that way, we really gave a lot to each other. Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Let's talk vaccine. How does that feel, um, I guess, as a, a healthcare worker and also a, a person of faith that in what, like nine, 10 months of vaccine, which uh, now you've taken one of the first in your hospital to take uh, really come full circle from the first patient in Long Island to one of the first vaccine receivers. Um, how do you sort of, what, what do you think of this, uh, you know, tremendous effort of humanity coming together so quickly? You know, I'm so glad you said that because it really is a huge effort from the people who create the font on the actual vial to the people who are learning new things, which are um, how to actually administer a vaccine. Um, the young pharmacist who administered mine was quite new at actually administering vaccines. Um, and to the UPS man who delivered them and all the people involved in this. First of all, I have a tremendous amount of uh, gratitude and hakarata tov to my hospital that they view um, they view me as valuable and important. And in doing so, advocating that the emergency department nurses and the ICU nurses, those that are dealing with coronavirus patients the most, receive it um, you know, with priority. So that I feel um, really fortunate for. Um, I feel it's, it's, I have a, a certain level of obligation um, not from my organization or from my community, but for myself. If I am supposed to be an ambassador of knowledge and science and information and a a woman of deep faith, then this is what the science has produced. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of misinformation out there and it's everybody's um, due diligence to go ahead and investigate for themselves, not the opinions, but what the science says about it. Mm 
And if you trust that oxygen works when someone can't breathe, and you trust that medications help reduce or improve something, then we also have to trust this. hundred mm -hmm. percent. Do you have any, I guess, is there any, as a healthcare worker, any thoughts on sort of like where things are looking in the future now, now that the vaccine is rolling out? Are they, are you hearing any sort of predictions from people on the front lines? Like one, when we might see some sort of a, I guess, a, a change in the, the number of cases or maybe when, you know, thing, when herd immunity will come about, like any, any sort of word? You know? No, yeah. no. Um, at, at the beginning, right before we went into lockdown, I, I knew we were going to go into lockdown because of the ICU doctors in our little ICU. Um, and I immediately, um, you know, uh, said, OK, I need to go to the library and get books for um, my children. <laughs> that was a priority, 25 books for each of them. But I don't have my ear to the floor in the same way. And I think that everybody's prognosticating and all of us want to hang on to hope that the best parts of life, which are um, seeing people's smiles and, and holding hands and hugging and spending time drinking tea or um, in the presence of people who we love or who we enjoy will come back. Um, I think that all of us just have to be patient one day at a time. I live by that philosophy. 100%. Um, we have about uh, two minutes left. Any, I guess, like closing thoughts about um, why you would recommend people going into some sort of um, service work? I mean, you've dedicated your life to it. Now you're in a different career. You've gone now into, you know, a, a career of service. But um, any thoughts for someone either in terms of a career or some sort of, you know, volunteer opportunities? Um, what What do you get back despite um, really being under intense pressure uh, after all these months of, you know, really um, emergency conditions. Um, why is it worth it? Why would you recommend for someone to find a way to, to serve um, other human beings? I think that there's a simple pleasure in very small things. Nobody will ever remember me because I gave them medication or because I gave them a treatment or because I advanced their care. They'll remember me because of the way I did something. So you can hand someone a blanket or you can wrap them in a blanket. You can, mm -hmm. hand them a, you can hand them a wash up kit or you can open the wash up kit and show them a special feature about it. Mm -hmm. You can, it, it's all a matter of, of the point of view and the perspective. Um, and so whether it's people who are interested in medicine or in nursing or a healthcare profession um, or even a volunteer opportunity, there, you bring so much to people in just small gestures. None of it has to be grand. Um, and I think that there's some, there's a lot to be said for that, that, uh, the grand gestures, those are easy to impress people with, but it's the smaller ones when you're, when your um, your resources are limited. Those are things that last a lifetime. This actually reminds me, I heard my rub give a class on, um, we don't, we're not just supposed to do mitzvahs, we're supposed to do mitzvahs with midos. So I really love, and this is reminding me of that, the idea of not just, you know, go through the motions of doing the thing you're supposed to do to, to help or to serve, but actually have a certain intentionality um, in that process so that um, you don't just give it over, but you give it over with care and love. And those things certainly do stay with people um, for, for a lifetime. So um, thank you so much for your tireless work um, in, you know, not just uh, helping people stay alive, but also um, being this tremendous Kiddush Hashem uh, God knows we need it more now than ever, um, and you should uh, 
have continued Hatzlacha in your work and uh, there should be a refua for the entire world soon. Amen. Okay, thank you. So, so lovely to meet you. Thanks again for the opportunity. For sure. And thank you for listening. You can catch us same time, same place next week.